11. We are going to begin a study this morning that's going to stretch three or four weeks, maybe five, um, to get through this chapter uh, with regard to marriage and singleness. And we're going to start with singleness today since most of our marrieds, no, not most, many of our marrieds aren't here this morning. But we're going to take it as 1 Corinthians gives it. You can see there are 40 verses in this chapter. Um, it's going to take us some time to plow through them. We're going to not do them necessarily in the order that they are written. Um, we are going to keep on a theme through it. And so it's going to move us through the chapter. And then we're going to back up and go through other portions of the chapter. So this morning, we're going to read the entirety of chapter 7 to get the fullest context of it. Uh, we are obviously are going to be touching on several principles throughout it. Um, and uh, we will, from really verse 1 all the way to verse 40. And so we're going to be in all of this chapter this morning. Uh, and so we're going to read it all. But uh, we are certainly going to spend some time with, the, with each of these principles that God delivers to us. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, I'm reading out of the New King James Version, as is my custom. God's Word says, Now concerning the things of which you wrote to me, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. Nevertheless, because of sexual immorality, let each man have his own wife, and let each woman have her own husband. Let the husband render to his wife the affection due her, and likewise also the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another except with consent for a time that you may give yourselves to fasting and prayer. And come together again so that Satan does not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. But I say this as a concession, not as a commandment. For I wish that all men were even as I myself. But each one has his own gift from God, one in this manner and another in that. But I say to the unmarried and to the widows, it is good for them if they remain even as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, let them marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. Now to the married I command, yet not I, but the Lord, a wife is not to depart from her husband. But even if she does depart, let her remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband. And the husband is not to divorce his wife. But to the rest I, not the Lord, say, If any brother has a wife who does not believe and she is willing to live with him, let him not divorce her. And a woman who has a husband who does not believe, if he is willing to live with her, let her not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified by the husband. Otherwise your children would be unclean, but now they are holy. For if the unbeliever departs, let him depart. A brother or a sister is not under bondage in such cases, but God has called us to peace. For how do you know, a wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, a husband, whether you will save your wife? But as God has distributed to each one, as the Lord has called each one, so let him walk. And so I ordain in all the churches. Was anyone called while circumcised? Let him not become uncircumcised. Was anyone called while uncircumcised? Let him not be circumcised. Circumcision is nothing, and uncircumcision is nothing, but keeping the commandments of God is what matters. Let each one remain in the same calling in which he was called. Were you called while a slave? Do not cons be concerned about it. But if you can be free, rather use it. For he who is called in the Lord while a slave is the Lord's freedman. Likewise, he who is called while free is Christ's slave. 
You were bought at a price. Do not become slaves of men. Brethren, let each one remain with God in that state in which he was called. Now concerning virgins, I have no commandment from the Lord, yet I give judgment as one whom the Lord in his mercy has made trustworthy. I suppose, therefore, that this is good because of the present distress that it is good for a man to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be loosed. Are you loosed from a wife? Do not seek a wife. But even if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a virgin marries, she has not sinned. Nevertheless, such will have trouble in the flesh, but I would spare you. But this I say, brethren, the time is short. So that from now on, even those who have wives should be as, they, as though they had none. Those who weep as though they did not weep. Those who rejoice as though they did not rejoice. Those who buy as though they did not possess. And those who use this world as not misusing it. For the form of this world is passing away. But I want you to be without care. He who is unmarried cares for the things of the Lord, how he may please the Lord. But he who is married cares about things of the world, how he may please his wife. There's a difference between a wife and a virgin. The unmarried woman cares about the things of the Lord, that she may be holy both in body and in spirit. But she who is married cares about the things of the world, how she may please her husband. And this I say for your own profit, not that I may put a leash on you, but for what is proper and that you may serve the Lord without distraction. But if any man thinks he is behaving improperly towards his virgin, if she is past the flower of youth, and thus it must be, let him do what he wishes. He does not sin, let them marry. Nevertheless, he who stands steadfast in his heart, having no necessity, but has power over his own will, and has so determined in his heart that he will keep his virgin, does well. So then, he who gives her in marriage does well. But he who does not give her in marriage does better. A wife is bound by law as long as her husband lives. But if her husband dies, she is at liberty to be married to whom she wishes, only in the Lord. But she is happier if she remains as she is, according to my judgment. And I think I also have the Spirit of God. Let's go, Lord, in prayer together this morning. Our great Scott. Well, this morning we begin a study that um, is near to everybody's heart. Whether we want to acknowledge it or not, that is the truth. You all have some very strong, and I would contend probably very personal views on what we're going to be discussing for the next several weeks. Those views and those opinions, those ideas that you hold and cling to, and we do cling to them, um, have been influenced largely by your experiences in your own homes, in the homes of others around you, and in your life. They have been largely influenced by your society around you, including media and peers, which means that they were formed by the influence of those who had other experiences. And if there's any area of life that we are most influenced by the world, it is in this area of the relationship between men and women and how that should occur, what is right and what is uh, beneficial. And we have learned in our last few months, last few months, last few decades, sorry, 
some of you it's only been a few months, but most of us has been decades, that we are to exert ourselves and promote our gender, whether that be male or female isn't relevant. We genuinely do have gender wars going on, whether we recognize it or not. We have assimilated a low view of civility. That is, that we are no longer carrying what we consider puritanic view of the relationship between men and women. It has infiltrated our conversations, our attitudes, um, what we consider humorous, and it has wreaked havoc upon those very relationships because of the way that we have absorbed the world's view of something very precious. As we consider this topic, we want to begin by understanding Paul's foundation, but also all of Scripture's foundation. For the book of Corinthians is in the context of the Scriptures. And Paul himself is going to, as he already has referenced in chapter 6, Genesis as the foundation of our understanding of the origin of marriage and hence its purpose. We find that origin is not of men, but of God. And as such, God reserves for himself the right to both define it and to describe it and to lay down the principles by which it will succeed. As we violate those principles, it is no wonder that we find disaster within families. We would like to say that that doesn't happen within the church. We would like to because it ought to be said. It ought to be able to be said. But as we talked several weeks ago, we ought to be living by a double standard, one for us and one for the world. But rather, we find ourselves adhering more and more to the standards of the world, and it shows nowhere more than in this area of our relationships, one with another, particularly within the marital relationship or the lack thereof. The little title that men have added to the top of my chapter in my Bible here in chapter 7 is Principles of Marriage. And that is uh, really not quite up to the bar. Um, The title really should be Principles of Singleness and Marriage. And here we begin already to be confronted with one of the hang-ups of our society and that many within the Christian circles have adhered to as well, and we want to address it properly. We want to handle this area, not because it precedes marriage chronologically, but because it is better than marriage from God's perspective. So we're going to handle what is God's best for our lives. We are then going to move into what is good. And then we're going to discuss, down the road a piece, what is bad for us. What is evil? What is it that that God hates? Where does sin begin? 
in these relationships between men and women. And so we are going to address this not just because it's the next verses. Uh, It is a natural outpouring of his previous statement regarding the sin that was in the church of Corinth. And that sin was sexual immorality. We are told in verse 18 to flee it. To run away, to, to distance ourselves from it. Do everything within our power to do so. Why? The foundation principle here, in addition to the Genesis principle, that is that God is the designer and therefore the authority with regard to this matter, is further that for the believer, the reason we have a double standard, the reason we have a different standard for ourselves in the world is because we are not our own. We have been purchased. We have been boughten. And so the idea that you are not your, your body is not your own, but it belongs to God now, that we look to Him and we call Him Lord, meaning Master, placing ourselves in a subservient place, we recognize that now we are gods by creation, We are the Lord's by salvation, and we are the Holy Spirit's by indwelling. So thrice we are God's. And God has this kind of ownership over the one who is truly a believer today. It is not just your soul he has saved, as we discussed last week. It is the entirety of your person that is his. And so Paul asks the question, don't you know that your bodies are members of Christ? Don't you know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit? That you are not your own? And if we know this, and we do cognitively, we do in our intellect know this, but the idea here is, are you intimate with this knowledge? Have you brought this into your very being and understand the ramifications of it? And this is the foundation, really, of all that's going to happen. Can we and should we submit our relationships to the principles of God that are some thousands of years old? And I would contend they are very much thousands of years old. And they have worked for thousands of years, and they have been disobeyed for thousands of years, and the consequences have been reaped for thousands of years. Um, Marital bliss has been available, and marital misery has been readily around. It's nothing new to our age. And here in the city of Corinth, we have a question that has been posed to Paul. A question that is very relevant to us. Because in many, many ways, as we have seen already in the first six chapters, um, our situation is very similar to that of Corinth. Corinth was a city that was inundated with sexuality. It was inundated with prostitution it was a port city that was, it was a double port city. That is, it took goods from one sea and was the land bridge that saved weeks at sea and very dangerous waters to the other sea. And thus it was a place of internationalness, of, of, uh, of where someone could go and not be recognized and known. Those are dangerous places. There was a great flux of ideas and philosophies from around the world that came into Corinth. And it was a very hedonistic place. Not only with regards to human sexuality, but to sports, where the Corinthian games were rivaled only by the Athenian ones. 
This was a place of hedonism where pleasure was God. And it is a very apt description of where you live. The God of America is hedonism. We worship it, our entertainment, and thus we worship the flesh and the satisfaction of our flesh. And as Christians were approaching their society there in Corinth, they asked Paul a question. What is right when it comes to the relationship between men and women? You might say, well, that's silly. But it's not. And in fact, when I deal with young people today, what I find is that most of them have no clue what is right when it comes to the relationship between men and women. Because all that they have been inundated with from their YouTube and from their computers, it's not even TVs anymore. They don't really watch that much TV, I don't think, anymore. Um, But even from from every media access point, from their film stars and from all their reality shows have been inundated with them with pretty much negative images, certainly unbiblical and ungodly ideas of our role, our place in these relationships. And so the Corinthians had this kind of ignorance. How should we do this? Is it not right to ever get married? Is it how does a father handle a daughter? How does how do um, how do I deal with the fact if I come to know Christ and my spouse didn't come to know Christ? How how should I respond to that? And and I, do I honor the vows before I got mar- my marriage vows before I got saved, or are they null and void now that I'm saved? All these questions were being brought up in the Corinthian church. And believe it or not, they are very active today. You would think with a chapter like this, we would have those answers addressed and it would be resolved in the church and there wouldn't be any doubt and there wouldn't be any questioning. But in fact, today, we still have it very active uh, area of discussion and debate over these very issues that the Corinthians were asking. Why is it so debated? It goes back to my opening statement is because we all have very powerful, very deep feelings, ideas about this area. When we started the study in Corinthians, I warned you that there's going to be some radical things here that are going to jar us. They're just going to be so abrupt, so outlandish to us because our Christianity has has slidden so far into worldliness that to even conceive of going into this kind of lifestyle um, seems absurd and impossible. Um, And here it's going to begin very abruptly with a very bold statement. You want to know the right way for men and women to relate in the physical realm? And that is Paul's concern. That was the Corinthians' concern. Remember, they're carnal Christians. They're fleshly. They are oriented towards their body. Um, That's the priority for them. They haven't really discovered the depth and breadth and height of spiritual living. And so God, through Paul, has to address this right away. We're going to go into chapter 7 now with that lengthy introduction. But before we do so, let's go, Lord, in prayer. Lord God, we do thank you for your love for us. We thank you for your word before us, and we need your help. Um, We have our ideas that aren't yours. 
We hold them because we hold our experiences of greater importance and greater authority than your word. We cling to them because we've grown accustomed to them. And true righteousness is formed us. We will resist changing them. Because to do so, we'll acknowledge that we are wrong. It will require us to humble ourselves. Lord, for all these reasons, we need your help today. As anyone in sin, we are called to repent, which demands of us to recognize that our thinking and our behavior is wrong. Lord, help us to understand your truth. We might call what is sin, sin, but also be careful not to call what is not sin, sin. Lord, give us that discernment today. And as always, we pray that your Spirit might guard this time from error and from opinion, not only from what is said, but from our own thinking. They might conform ourselves to your truth. In Christ Jesus' name, amen. Well, we begin right away dealing with singleness. Um, We are confronted in verse 1 with this bold statement concerning the things of which you wrote to me. And here is the bold statement that's really not extensively supported until later on. It is good for a man not to touch a woman. Uh, The statement, it is good, is going to come up three times. Uh, It's going to be the three points, the three principles of singleness that we want to draw out today throughout this chapter. Um, you will find this uh, reference, it is good, uh, re- meaning that here is the best that God has for you. If you want to know what I would really advise you, what, if you really want wisdom, if you want the, 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 the best that the Spirit would move in your heart to, then here it is. I will lay it out for you uh, with these it is good statements. And we begin immediately with a preparedness for singleness. And we have this statement, it's good for a man not to touch a woman. And uh, that is uh, left alone because we're going to go to the negation of that in verse 2. But we're not going to go there today um, because that's going to have to do with getting married. And we're not talking about getting married today. In fact, we're going to try to avoid it at all costs today. Okay, that's goal number one today. I hope it becomes goal number one for all of our unmarried people here is to avoid it at all costs. Um, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. Um, we have discussed this with our teens extensively about the, uh, the benefits that are there. We have God's Word tells us in two areas and warns men in regard to relationship with women. Number one is their eyes, and number two is their hands, is their, their physical touch. And so we are commanded to guard our eyes and to guard our touch. These are the two attributes of the two physical traits of man that are most easily tempted in this area. And so for you who are single, and that is the uh, one of the questions is about marriage and, and uh, our relationships. What about singleness? Uh, we begin by, before you go anywhere, let's set this principle down. Principle number one is that we do not seek out 
physical relationships with the opposite sex. That is, that we do not engage in it. Now, we are not referring to a handshake, and I've been really on some people uh, lately, especially young people and, and some of the ladies. Um, I have several gals that want to shake hands like a man, and I won't let them anymore. I've decided that I'm going to take a stand. I'm going to be radical. And so if you come out and want to shake my hand like a man, I won't let you, and I will grab your fingers like I should and turn your hand over the way it should be like a lady. You might say, well, that's just silly, Pastor. Well, it begins with the small little things. The Bible says that it's one of the smallest members of your body that controls all the rest, and that's your tongue. And we're going to get to, to our conversation as well, that we are going to speak politely and rightly uh, to one another. But we want to begin here with a physical principle that says, I am going to guard myself from this physical contact because I recognize that it begins something that will overwhelm my will. And so I will exert my will at the very onset and say I will set forth this principle that will not make this kind of contact with women or uh, particularly uh, those of which I might be interested in. And what are you referring to? Um, certainly, ultimately, the ultimate physical contact is a sexual act, but even which we already looked at in the last chapter. But even preceding that, we can just keep backing up, backing up and say, well, how far is sin? How, much, how far can I go until it's sin? And I have young people ask me that question regularly. Well, is it okay to do this? Is it okay to do that? Is it okay to do that? And I keep going back to Philippians that says, why are we worrying about how close to the fire we can get instead of thinking, um, is it okay not to do that? Can you marry someone that you've never kissed? Well, no, because the... Well, no, actually, I tell them to kiss them after they're married in the ceremony, so that's okay. Uh, is it okay to do that? I've never had anyone ask me that. Is it okay to marry someone I've never kissed? Never had any young person ask me that question. It's always that. Is it okay to kiss boys that I don't intend to marry? We always want to know, how close can I get before I get to sin? And this is the reverse of what God calls us to when He tells us, what are you meditating on? And Paul here says, meditate on this. That, it's, that what is best is if you just keep the physicality of your relationship um, at the absolute minimum. Well, the absolute minimum is zero contact. And we recognize that that isn't always possible. In fact, sometimes it's downright unfriendly. Um, and I still have young ladies coming up to me and uh, in various settings, and, and they want a hug, and I usually, uh, okay, I'll give you one of these little things there. Um, and, but I usually shake their hands, and now they've gotten to, the, to doing that with me. Um, and I'll do that, and you say, well, you're an old married man. It's not an issue with you. Wrong. You notice the old, which I can't believe you said that. Um, people. Yes, I'm old. Yes, I'm married. Those things help. But it's that last word that's the problem. I'm a man. And as soon as we start denying that, we get ourselves into trouble, guys. Because we don't recognize that this is an issue. And, and it's amazing when you look at the book of Proverbs, and I wanted to spend some time there, but we're not going to be able to this week. Um, where God calls us and says, listen, look out. You know, here's what she's going to do. She's going to paint her face up. She's going to put on her best apparel. She's going to bejewel herself. And she's going to sit out on the corner and wave you fools in. And you're just going to go, uh, 
The Bible describes two corners of every street in your life. And they are opposite of each other. The one is filled with that woman who wants to draw you in. And the other one is wisdom calling out to the same foolish young man. It says, come over here. Over there are stolen goods and over here are just genuine wealth. And so we are given this instruction that, listen, what is best is that we do make every effort to prevent this physical aspect of a relationship from developing anywhere before it's time. And it's the rare young person that will take make this commitment and say, I will not violate this issue first. This is where I stand. And we, we have uh, some things going on out there. We have um, ladies, I haven't met any guys with these, but with purity rings. Uh, why aren't the guys wearing them? Why is it just a girl thing? I don't get it. Um, you know, I don't know. But uh, we, we have the purity rings. And, uh, but what we usually mean by that is I will not engage in sex before marriage. Um, and that's just not enough. I got to tell you, the guys you're dealing with, uh, that's not enough. And if you think that's the line, you don't understand males. That isn't the line. The line is way before that. And so God understands the male. He understand, He created us. Did you know that? He doesn't understand us because He's a man. He understands because He created us. He knows what drives us. And so His statement is, guys, don't touch a woman. That's what's best. Maintain that physical separation because it is a protection. It is a guard on your heart and on your life and on your righteousness. Set that guard. Saying that, I, And our society, uh, decades and decades and decades, before any of you were around, um, even in the 20s and stuff, we are already beginning to really violate this like the Romans were doing in the time of, of this writing. Um, there was a time in our culture where that contact was extremely limited. We really enjoy, I should say my family really enjoys um, Jane Austen movies. Is that who it is, Jane Austen? I got the right person, Pride and Prejudice and all that. Okay, And the formality of the relationships between men and women. And I got to tell you that, that I prefer that head and shoulders. Why? Because it sets these guards that as long as I am formal in my relationship with others, I have now the opportunity to discover who they are before the physical aspects of our relationship develop. We find that this is what is best. Not only until you get married, but even, if possible, all your life. That is, what is best by God's design is singleness. And this is where the church has failed its people. And I've talked to our young people about this, um, but I believe that one of the aspects of our society, in particular the homosexual community, is that we have treated singleness as a disease. 
that somehow something is wrong with you if you're not married. And this is error. And it actually is 180 degrees, the opposite of what God's Word declares. And because of that, in fact, I uh, listened on the radio uh, a couple of weeks ago of a gentleman that says that, is that I wasn't really interested in girls, I wasn't really uh, looking for any of that, and because of the peer pressure, I figured, well, if I'm not interested in girls, I must be gay. He wasn't. But you, if you don't have a relationship with women, you must be gay. And the society has that mentality of them coming to the church and we have fostered it. When we find in God's Word that singleness is a preferred state, not just for your youth, but maybe for your entire life. I mean, think about the terminology we use for old single people. She's an old maid. I mean, it just sounds bad. You know, she's 28, she's an old maid. I mean, you're old when you're 28 because you're not married? God doesn't have that perspective at all. It's fascinating that Paul is going to describe three different reasons why people are um, eunuchs or unwilling or uninterested in being married. Um, One, because they're born that way. One, because men make them that way. One, because they choose to be made that way. That those are the three reasons why there are some that have no, absolutely no interest in women at all. The problem is, is that we have directed them because we are sure you have to be in a relation, sexual relationship with someone that if it's not a woman, it must be a man that you need to be in a relationship with. And to some degree, the church carries some responsibility in that respect. Because we do not view single individuals in the esteemed manner that God's Word does. And so this first principle is not just for a season of your life, but it is best for all of your life if you maintain this idea. It is best for a man not to touch a woman. The issue at hand is about self-control. And this comes into play in verse 6. I want to jump down to verse 6 and follow. Well, really, the end of verse 5 says that you married people, your biggest problem is that you don't have self-control. So if you can't control yourself, which is a... I've never had anyone pre counsel that says, yeah, I'd like to be single, but I just can't control myself. I never heard that statement. And yet that's God's view of it here. We come to verse 6, but I say this, that is that you should go ahead and get married as a concession. That is, I am allowing something that I really don't want best. I want the best for you, but I want something good, if not best, um, not as a commandment. So here we go. Here's what Paul's desire for men is. I desire for all men, whereas my, I myself, but each one has his own gift from God, one in this manner, another in that, but I say to them, married unto the widows, it is good for them if they remain even as I am. And Paul was a single man, whether he was a widower or whether he had never been married. Some contend that because he was a Pharisee, he had to have been married. Um, I can't find any evidence of that to be true. Whether he was always single or whether he was a widower, um, irrelevant, um, he is single. And he says, I wish you were remaining as me. Now you might say, well, that's just ethnocentrism. That's just because he's that way. He thinks everyone should be that way because it's happy for him. 
Um, no, he has some argumentation he's going to put behind that here in a little bit. But I want to jump in on something that he just said. I have a concession to your lack of self-control. Remember, he's talking to the Corinthian believers who are carnal, not spiritual. And I hear a lot of people using this um, argument and making this claim. In fact, I have never yet met one person who come up to me and said, Pastor, I have the gift of singleness. Not one man has ever said that to me. In fact, quite the opposite. I think every single man I've ever met said, I don't have the gift of singleness. Why? When God's Word makes it very clear that you do. There are many out there. You can deny it, but that is the reality. We come to this concessionary statement, and we look at over and over again at the statement of self-control. And I have to come away with principle number two, is that you are not an animal. What do I mean by that? I mean that you have the ability to make choices. You are not an instinctual being. That is that you are not going to have to do this um, because I'm a guy and he's a girl. Oh, he's a girl. She's a girl. We just have to do this. Wrong. The world wants you to believe that, that you are animalistic and that is the whole evolutionary model is that you are just well-developed animals, which I don't understand still why you're wearing clothes if you're just an animal. Because none of the animals do. I don't get it. But we are not animals. And, and Paul recognizes that there is this element of self-control that, that people possess, that you can make these kinds of choices. And that even in this very powerful drive of man, um, God says you can control yourself. In fact, I expect you to. Not only are you capable of doing it, If you are a spiritual person that you claim to be, you will exercise self-control. And so we find that we are not without the means to make this happen. But I would contend that rather than encouraging such self-control, the church has long prevented it. And whether it's the desire for grandchildren, which I have learned how to avoid that. I just didn't adopt everyone else's grandchildren. Or simply that we feel that everyone would be healthier and better married. We have long tempted our young people in this area of self-control. That there must be something wrong with someone single. And that it's something that must be fixed by a matchmaker. Be that a relative or an acquaintance. And Paul says very differently. Rather we should view that marriage and the need to get married is a statement of a lack of self-control of a weakness. That there is strength in singleness. Paul recognizes in verse 7, each one has his own gift from God, one in this manner, in singleness, one in another another in that, which is marriedness. And so we find that God gifts us or enables us. And so we view that, well, 
You know, Proverbs says that he who finds a wife finds a good thing. Yes, that's a gift of God, is a godly wife. We forget that Proverbs also says it's better to live on the rooftop in the rain than to be in the house with a contentious or angry woman. Somehow we ignore that one and we focus on finding a wife as a good thing. And so there's a good balance in Proverbs, which is what Proverbs is all about, is a balance of what is godly. But we come to it and we say, well, we focus on those passages that says, oh, marriage is great, marriage is wonderful, marriage is honorable, marriage, 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 and wives are, are you know, it, it's the best, and husbands for the ladies. And then we come to singleness and we go, well, what's wrong with you? And I have to ask why. When we have ample evidence from God's word that God honors that that he esteems it, that he elevates it, that he recognizes that these are his instruments. Why is a wife a gift from God but not singleness? I don't understand. Where we have captured that idea in our minds, may I dare say that it is out of our own Pride. Because I have received this from God, therefore my children should receive it from God. Or because I want grandchildren to carry on my name or such. And these are all selfish issues. Rather, God tells us that one of His gifts is singleness. And so it... it, when we consider that aspect, that not only is a wife a wonderful gift from God or a husband a wonderful gift from God, so also is contentment in singleness a wonderful gift of God that the church ought to elevate and extol. Now, we might look at others who invoke or impose it on others, uh, such as the Catholic Church does upon their priesthood, and uh, God doesn't instruct us in that. In fact, Paul's going to go on here in Corinthians and talk about the fact that Cephas had a wife. Most all of the other apostles had a wife. Barnabas and Paul were the exceptions, not the rule. But a very powerful exception, wasn't he? Maybe the reason Peter only wrote two books and Paul, what, 15, um, was because Peter had to take care of his wife. I don't know, but... Let us have a right view towards this and recognize it and be content in it. Again, verse 9 tells us, if they cannot exercise self-control. And I would have to conclude that if an individual cannot exercise self-control, that there are issues between them and their God. For one of the fruit of the Spirit is self-control. The capacity to do this. And so... Paul looks and says, if we have not grown spiritually to this degree, and most of our young people haven't, we need to recognize that, that then we move them into this marrying state. Neither marrying nor singleness is sin. And so our first principle, we're going to keep a physical barrier. Second principle, I recognize that I'm not an animal, and therefore I am not going to have to succumb to physical pressures in this area. Number three principle is that singleness is a gift. It is a good thing from God. It is not a curse. Even though society may view it that way and they do so to their detriment, it is not a curse 
on God of God. It is a gift from God for the believer. In Matthew chapter 19, Christ Himself describes this. Let me read that portion to you. He has been talking about divorce. The disciples have asked Him some questions about it after some of the Pharisees had asked Him about it, um, trying to get Him twisted into a corner. And... Uh, Jesus has some very strong words about divorce. And in response to them, here's what the disciples say in verse 10 of chapter 19 of Matthew. His disciples said to him, If such is the case of the man with his wife, it is better not to marry. That was their conclusion, having heard what Jesus said. It's best not to marry. If God has that low view of divorce, and if divorce is that horrific, um, maybe it's better not to ever get married. And Paul, or Paul, Jesus says to them, All cannot accept this saying, but only those to whom it has been given. God has given something. And He has given this this singleness to these individuals. This is a gift of His. And this is the passage that says, For there are eunuchs who were born thus from their mother's womb, eunuchs who were made eunuchs by men, eunuchs who have been made themselves eunuchs for the kingdom of heaven's sake. He who is able to accept it, let him accept it. And it is time that we as a church body and as family units begin to accept this fact that this is a gift of God. It is not something to be fixed. It is something to be rejoiced over. It is not something to be viewed lowly, but to be esteemed. It is not something to try to get our children to avoid. It is something to get our children to embrace. Christ Himself says, this is the best. But not very many people can handle it. And if you can, don't complain. Rejoice and get busy. Because you have a lot of liberty that others do not. And so whether you are a widow, whether you are a widower, whether you are single, in whatever that condition, Paul says it's a gift from God. View it as such. And shame on anyone who views it as something wrong with you. For God has extolled it, has lifted it up, and made it really the best condition. The third principle has three parts to it. The principle is in verse 17, and I'm way behind time. I'm going to try to speedy Gonzales it now. God has distributed to each one, as the Lord has called each one, so let him walk. What is he talking about? He is saying that however, as you came to Christ, in that condition in which you got saved, it is best for you to stay in that condition. And so Corinthian people were getting saved, and some of them were saved, some of them, or all of them got saved. Some of them were slaves, some of them were free, some of them were, had been circumcised, some had not, some were married, some were single, some were divorced, some were anywhere in between. And Paul said, I can be in between, I don't know, but they were there. And Paul says, whatever condition you got saved in, just stay put. Just stay and recognize that um, your new life in Christ can be lived out in any of these environments and should be lived out. And it is best for you to stay in that state in which you were called, where you were received Christ your Savior when you got saved, Stay in that condition um, 
obviously not in sin. And so if you're living with a guy, you're going to have to resolve this issue. If you're living with a girl, you're going to have to resolve this because that is immorality. And we base upon chapter 6 and God's statements would challenge them to get married quickly to set it right. But if but whether you're single or married, before you got saved, now that you're saved, be content in that which God has placed you. Why? Three reasons. Here's the three parts. You jump down to verse 26. This is good because of the present distress it is good for a man to remain as he is. It is best to walk in the condition in which you are saved because of the distresses of this present world. Some would contend that Paul's referring to a specific period of time that it only applies then. We're going to address that next week. He says, listen, it's best remain in that condition because of the hardships of this world. You might say, oh, it would be easier to face those, Pastor, if I had a wife by my side. If I had a husband with me, it would be easier to face that. That is not true. If that were the case, all those families in financial trouble would not be getting divorced, would they? All those people who go through the death of a child would not be separated and divorced, would they, if that were true? The fact is, is that handling and addressing distressful times is many times for the believer easier outside of a marital relationship in singleness. For one trusts in God alone. Third, or secondly, not only because of the distressful times, which he speaks again in verse 29, by the way, it says, the time is short so that from now on even those who have wives should be as those of none. Um, the brevity of this age. And I say, well, that was written like 2,000 years ago. Um, you don't understand. The brevity um, of the Christian existence wasn't based upon the church age, but upon the average lifespan of Christians who are being hunted down and slaughtered because of their faith. In our day, we can apply it as well to the end of the age that is coming quickly upon us. But we have a second statement, and that is, nevertheless, in verse, at the end of verse 28, it tells you if you marry, you're not sinned. If you haven't married, you haven't sinned. Uh, this isn't a sin issue. This is a better and best issue. It says, Nevertheless, such will have trouble in the flesh, but I would spare you. But there is difficulty. And when you talk to old married people, they'll start to explain that to you. Particularly if they have had a rugged marriage. And every one of us who have been married can honestly tell our children there have been rough spots in the marriage. Can God give you victory in those? Certainly. Is it an excuse for divorce? No. But the fact is that when you look around and you see the view of marriage, and we, we get with bachelor parties, and this is um, one of the things we used to say to old bachelors, oh, you know, and I remember doing this to my brothers uh, and my brother-in-law. 
future brother-in-law, um, we used to get the ball and chain uh, at the, that night, and they'd have to wear the ball and chain all night to get them ready for marriage. Because that's how... Or that we would view it that way and explain it to our young people that way that there's trouble in the flesh. We think, well, once I get married, I'll never have lust issues again. Wrong! You don't stop being a man just because you're a husband. It doesn't go away. If that were the case, there would be no infidelity, would there? Oh, I'm sure that that will solve the problem. It will not solve. If you're getting married to solve problems, you're getting married for the very worst of reasons, and it will not solve problems. It will create more. Please, if that is your motivation, you think for sure, I just got to find a wife and get married, and then that will all go away. It won't. What you're doing is adding, not subtracting from issues in your life. Because now, not only are you dealing with the issues of your body, you've got to deal with the issues of another body. His or hers. Which Paul points out clearly with regard to married people. And so, Paul says, I want to spare you trouble in the flesh because there's trouble. Because you're dealing with another imperfect, sinful person and you're going to have to make concessions. You're going to have to deal with their weirdnesses and they all have them. Um, and you're going to have to accommodate it or you're going to be miserable in the process. And if you happen to get a, not a godly wife, not a virtuous wife, oh my, the misery will have no end. And vice versa. Ladies, if you don't get a godly husband, oh, the heartache. And so Paul says, I want, to, I want to spare you the trouble that comes from being married. Verse 32 is another reason, the last one that we'll handle this morning. The third part of the third principle, and that is, verse 32, but I want you to be without care. He who is unmarried cares for the things of the Lord, how he may please the Lord. But he who is married cares about things of the world, how he may please his wife. And he says the same thing in verse 34 with regards to the woman. And essentially, he says, listen, you have an opportunity that others do not. Don't squander it. The reason you stay single as a believer is to engage yourself in the work of the Lord to degree that a married man cannot and I would contend that married men try to do this, that they are doing a disservice to their wife, and in that condition they are doing a disservice to God. And the result of that are lost children. And I'm speaking to pastors who I have seen go into international ministries, and it goes way back, if you go back to... Um, some of the early evangelists. Um, who was the baseball player? I can't think of his name right quick. Huh? Billy Sunday. Go back to Billy Sunday, a man who traveled coast to coast, spoke to one-third of the population of this nation. Think about that. Over one-third of the population of the United States heard Billy Sunday in person preach. But he was married. And his children did not follow after the Lord. Because you owe something to your wife. 
You cannot give yourself to that kind of ministry without consequence, personally. But a married, I'm sorry, an unmarried person has no limits. Has no limitations at all. I went to Haiti last year for three weeks and um, it was hard work down there, but uh, it was really unfair to my wife to be gone that long. And I recognize that I can't minister like that year after year. And I, and I look at men who are married in the ministry and I see them traveling all over and God's Word makes it very clear that you don't have the liberty to do that anymore the day you chose to get married. And literally, when we call it settling down, that's exactly what God expects you to do. Settle down. You don't have the liberty to go hither, thither, and yon and drag your poor wife and kids all over with you. You have to have consideration for their needs as a priority in your life, even over ministry. But a single man like Paul could take every risk of his life that he wanted. He could travel extensively. He could do as much for God from, from before the sun rose to well after his set. And he could give full attention to it, to only the cares of the Lord, without distraction, without uh, any hindrances. He could do it all. He could work 40-hour weeks and then spend 40-hour weeks in ministry He could to, to support himself. He could do that because he did not have other responsibilities of a family. And Paul says, listen, you want to really serve the Lord, young person? You want to really serve God? You're going to have to remain single. You're going to have to remain single to do it like Paul did it have that kind of impact nationally or globally, you're going to have to be single. The other apostles do not have the liberty to do as Paul did. Their travel was lesser. It wasn't gone. It wasn't absent. But it was lesser because they had to concern themselves with their family. But the man who is unmarried and the virgin who is unmarried can think only of the things of the Lord. They have the capacity to do that. To exert themselves to their fullest energies. They don't have to worry about holding down, about having a house that's got enough rooms for all their kids. They don't have to worry about any of those things. They don't have to have enough cars for all their kids to drive. Oh boy, that would be freedom. Don't have to concern themselves about hauling them all over to track events. Don't have to have those concerns. You have freedom. Now, are my kids, am I ragging on them because they're holding me back? No, I chose that. Whether I had no kids or had a lot of kids, I chose to be married. And as soon as I made that choice, I set a limit on my ministry. And instead of viewing singleness as a limitation, we need to view singleness as the unlimited ministry. You have the opportunity to serve God night and day. Even with disregard to your own physical health. Because no one else is dependent upon you. So Paul can walk in 
and be stoned near to death. And there's no wife back there wringing her fingers over it. And he can get up and brush it off and walk away. He can take those kinds of risks. And God says, this is a servant. Does he, the church view it that way? Unfortunately, we have diminished this role that God has exalted. And because of that, we have lost much. For I am certain that there are many who went into unfortunate marriages and were miserable instead of remaining single and ministering. So let's take this to heart, these principles, that it can happen, it should happen, and is not to the detriment of the church, but to the benefit of the church to have singleness in its midst and even to be led by such individuals. But singleness itself does not qualify us for that ministry. We know it is uh, makes you available for it to this degree. But there are obviously other qualifications that none of the Corinthians had measured up to, which Paul is going to address in chapter 9. But let us change our view. And recognize what is best. While we glory over grandchildren in the physical realm, why are we not overwhelmed with joy over grand ministries by our single children? We must have a change of attitude that conforms with the truth of God's Word and multiply that amongst us. It says, I'm not going to search out this. I'm going to explore first God's best. Now I'm going to explore that for as long as I can. Why? Because it's what's good in God's sight. You explore pure singleness and all that it entails. Young people, explore it. Widows, widowers, explore it. Discover its great value. The joys But recognize the requirement from you is going to be self-control. And that's why Paul starts. Don't touch a woman and start down a road that keeps you from God's best. And let us view singleness for what it is. It is a gift of God. of greater value 
than a husband or wife. Let's pray. Lord God, we do thank you for your love for us. And Lord, we see the your word and we're confronted with it and we know that it's very different than what we have seen in your church, which has been glorified in your church. And Lord, we confess that as sin. That when we glorify or diminish what you lift up, uh, Lord, we pray that uh, we might evaluate ourselves and our church and one another, not according to our ideas or the world's, but yours. And praise in Christ Jesus' name. Amen. I invite you to take your book, your songbook to 403. This is a chorus. Very simple chorus. It is for all of you who are right now.